When I was early in my faith and learning scripture, one of the passages that you're taught often is all scripture is God-breathed, useful for correcting, instructing, and correcting. Uh, today's a bit of a challenge to that with the scripture reading, if you see it in your, in your bulletin. And so uh, Norma Doig is our scripture reader for this morning, and uh, I've already apologized to her for the selected reading. And no, this is not like a joke I'm playing at the very end. This is uh, the word of the Lord. Norma. So the word of the Lord this morning comes from Romans chapter 16, verses 5 to 17, and then 25 to 27. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend, Apenetus, who was the first converted to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, who I love in Lord. Greet Urbanus and your fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet Apelles, tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the house of Astrobolus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyntricus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers with them. Greet Philogos, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints with them. Greet one another with an holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if that's the first time that scripture reading has received applause, but well deserved. All scripture is God-breathed. Really? All? Anyway. The, uh, the best episode of any series, like a television series or a miniseries, I'd say television series, is most commonly what they call the penultimate episode. You know what that means, right? The second to last episode. And then you expect too much from the last episode. And very rarely, I can think of some examples where the last might be the best, but it's rare. 
Um, so I, I don't know, spoiler alert here. I'm actually not going to give it away. But you think of something like Downton Abbey, which I've mentioned from the front here before, Downton Abbey. Has anybody seen the very end of the Downton Abbey series? Yep, hands in the air. Anybody waiting to see it? Okay, so uh, my apologies with this little, um, little. I'm going to give you a little direction of what happens. If there is a loose end left untied up at the end of that last episode, I don't know what it was. I mean, they tied everything up, which just meant you go, which made you realize, oh, the last episode was the second to last episode, and this was like, you know, oh, right, got to finish off the, the story. Well, we've come to the end of the book of Romans. And uh, I don't know that, that, I mean, there's not episodes, and there's not actually chapters in Scripture. You know that, right? That's for our benefit, that they put chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and verse divisions. And, uh, this is just a letter written to a church, to a group of people seeking to establish a relatively new church. And Paul, who is writing the letter, has never visited them before, but wants to visit them. He clearly knows many of them because he greets these 26 people um, that Norman named so well. Uh, but I, So it's not like there's a second-to-last episode that you can point at that's the best. What you want to do is try to remember the whole of the letter. And we've been working on this now with some divisions over the past, well, more than a year. And, uh, and today we come to the end of the book of Romans, chapter 16. But do you remember what this is about, the Christian gospel from the book of Romans? Paul's going to outline in this letter to this church, to these new believers, many of them, what the Christian gospel is and then how they're to live in light of it. So the book opens with this presentation of how we would live if we didn't know the gospel. We would live either feeding our own appetites, our flesh, what we want, or we would live maybe uh, seeking to fulfill some kind of a religious obligation. And Paul says neither one of these things will work. If you live for self, and you can now just consider the world we live in. I mean, we live in Vancouver, and so it's pretty hedonistic culture often. And so you can think of what it means to live to serve appetite, just what you feel and what you want. And Paul says that leads to destruction. He talks about the wrath of God being revealed against that. But it's not like God's out to get you ever. It's that if you live only for self, you get in the end what that produces, which is really not much at all. Or you can live for religion, Paul says. So what happens is people get the wrath stuff on the, on the living for appetite and they think, yeah, those terrible, sinful non-believers or something like that. And uh, then Paul turns, the, turns his, his argument towards religious people and says, but look, if instead of living for self, if you just live for religion, trying to be better than other people and living to, to fulfill some kind of uh, moral standard that allows you to think down upon other people, then you're just moving to destruction in a different way. The wrath of God is revealed against this um, uh, divisive religious type of thinking. And and you've grown up, many of you, or you've experienced religion that can be divisive, and this is some of what Paul's talking about. Chapter 321 will say, but now, and so you have this term, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. And the rest of the book, he's going to outline the gospel. You don't have to live this way. You don't have to live this way. A righteousness from God has been revealed through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he's going to describe it. And you're going to get things like chapter 5. In chapter 5 and chapter 7 and other places, there's much in Romans that deal with the distinction between living uh, under the law or under faith. 
And so in chapter 5, he's going to talk about Adam, you know, Adam and Eve and sin in the garden. And he's going to say, if sin came through Adam, and so in a sense, sin and death, more than in a sense, sin and death come through through uh, the fall, through Adam and Eve. And so that touches all of us. If sin and death come through Adam, then how much more, and it's this question that you should have before you every day of your life if you're of Christian faith. If that's what came through Adam and Eve, then how much more will grace and truth and righteousness come through Jesus Christ? Sometimes referred to as the second Adam. You see the beauty of the gospel that Paul's outlining. Chapter 6, verse 23, and some of you memorized this when you were growing up. You know it starts, starts nice and dark. For the wages of sin is death. You get to say it out loud in church. And that part can resonate. You know, you think the wages of sin is death. And when you heard good religious people tell you that, you might have focused on that part. Yes, the wages of sin is death. That means you're bad and you're separated and all this stuff. Uh, there's, there's truth in, in, in understanding that first part. The wages of sin is death. But the emphasis of the verse is clearly the second half. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is all in Romans. This glorious, beautiful gospel. Chapter 8, and I say to myself as I'm working on this and thinking about this, and much of this, many of these passages I memorized as a young person growing up. Um, Romans 8, I memorized a lot of. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors, right? Nothing will separate us from the love of God. Chapter 8, so I kind of go, is this going to get even better than the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord? It gets even better. He keeps writing. He says in chapter 8, our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. He continues in chapter 8, when we pray, when we pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Now, this, you've come to church this morning and I, you know, I could walk through the rows and you could tell me what you're struggling with in your life and I could say, I'll pray for you and I will pray for you. And you could think, I mean, I know when you come here, you think about your struggles and you tend not to think that other people have struggles too. And so, but it'll all come out and we could say, well, we'll pray for one another. But do you know the truth that you need to know about prayer more than anything else? Before you pray, the Holy Spirit is interceding for you. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. So that when you start to pray, God is already praying those prayers. Interprets our groanings. Even you, How could a groaning be a prayer? Well, the Holy Spirit makes it so. It's beautiful gospel. God even prays on our behalf, but it gets even better than that, asking in Romans 8, if God is for us. Now, this is uh, one of these um, literary devices, a, a question that Paul has already answered. So the question, is God for us? But he has described before getting to chapter 8 that nobody ever in history could say that God is against us. God is not against humanity. God can't be against humanity. How do you know that? Because of Jesus Christ. God has turned towards us in Jesus Christ. So if God is for us, and what Paul means you to think when you read that, if God is for us, and obviously God is for us, then, who could possibly be against us? Now, if you 
feel that as I say it, you know all of this already how the fear in your heart begins to break down. If God is for us and He is absolutely for us, then how could anyone be against us? So why do you live your life in fear? And then, this is all Romans 8. Actually, Paul says we're more than conquerors. This isn't, this isn't something that we win. This is, there's nobody to defeat in this life. We're even more than conquerors. You know, victors and conquerors are small metaphors for what God has done. We are more than conquerors for, and now here's the part, right? For I am convinced, and Paul is, and I am. And I hope many of you are. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So Paul has presented a lot in this book. And the end is, Norma gets up and reads 26 names. The Christian gospel that God has turned towards us, not away from us, and the Christian declaration of faith is that we can turn towards God in Jesus Christ. God has chosen not to be God without us. We are sinners. But when you understand the gospel, that truth that we are sinners becomes something that is something that is safe to admit. Many of you have been in religious circles where it feels unsafe to admit that you're a sinner. I am a sinner. But by the grace of God, I know what it means to live this life of faith and salvation. We resist God and we resist love. God loves us while we are yet sinners and Jesus Christ becomes our righteousness. This is the gospel. We are crucified with Christ, crucified to the flesh. What that means and and the language, it's different in different translations, but even in this text, actually, it has this word that it, it's different in what Norma read to us, and I think even different in the ESV. But uh, uh, when Paul's giving a little warning at the end, and I'll, I'll reference that in a few minutes, he talks about watching out for those whose God is their belly. You're welcome, Lawrence. But that's, um, but I mean, it, it basically means, it doesn't just mean like people who eat too much or something like that. It means, or work out too much and, you know, want a six-pack or something. It's, it's, God is their belly means they just, they're driven by what they want and feel. And these can be people living after self or people living after religion. We're crucified to that with Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't wrestle with it at times. I don't know anybody here who doesn't continue to commit sin. But the Christian gospel is that we're crucified to that. That no longer controls us. We no longer think of it as a value to live that way. We no longer congratulate ourselves for getting what we want. I mean, what a revolutionary thought in the world. I, you know, I got everything I want. And people tell you that as if it's a great achievement. It's spiritually empty. If it's just appetite. If it's just stuff. We're crucified to that. And we're crucified to religion. We're crucified to the law in this way. 
We're crucified to the law in thinking that the law earns us any particular standing. We can respond to God's goodness by, by seeking to live good lives and even obeying. But we're crucified to the idea that religious living earns us standing before God. Only Jesus Christ, and this is the gospel, is the light of the world. Now, whether you believe this or not, maybe just consider this in your mind for a moment. The good things you know about Jesus, because Christianity can have a really bad name, but thanks be to God, Jesus doesn't. And so if you can, if you can shuffle aside all the bad things you might have about faith, or some of, those, some of them are misconceptions, some of them are stereotypes, but some of them come from truth, as, as people have practiced Christianity as, as sometimes fearful and hateful. Christianity is not the light of the world. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And even if you don't believe this, wouldn't you like to? Jesus is the light of the world. And then there's this theological interlude in chapters 9 to 11. The interlude is on a question that Paul anticipates as he's writing his letter. And I do this too as a minister sometimes. I think, oh, I'm going to say this, but then they're going to think, well, why didn't he do this? So, Paul, you're not that, you're not that grouchy usually, but anyway. Uh, Paul thinks, I'm going to write this, and then they're going to say, okay, who's in? So he outlines the gospel for eight chapters, and it sounds so glorious and beautiful and majestic and universal. And then he anticipates that they're going to say, especially because they've lived according to some real lines as to who's in and who's out, who's saved, who's not. And so chapters 9 to 11 are this, are this theological interlude, in a way answering the question of who's in and who's out, but the answer is given by saying, like good, good uh, thinkers and philosophers and theologians do, the answer is given by saying, if you're asking who's in and who's out, like I know many of you still do, you still do this. And we don't live in like a really judgmental church. But like who's, who's a Christian, who's not, who's in, who's out. And so Paul goes, okay, I get that question. But let me bring you to a better question. And the better question is this. This is the question you should hold in your minds as Christians everywhere you go. And every time you meet somebody and every time you wonder, is this person a believer or not or something like that? The question that Paul moves us to is the question, who is the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ? Well, I don't know if so-and-so is a Christian or not, do you? Who is the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ will then instruct me as to how I'm to relate to every other person? And so Paul kind of takes the dynamite out of their question and, and says there's a more important question before he moves to this sense of how we're to live in light of the gospel. And the answer to how you are to live now in light of the gospel, because that most important question is not who's in and who's out. And on some level, and I know there's our, our ethics matter, the way we treat one another, that matters. But there's a degree to which the first question is not even what should I do? particularly when we're adults and we grow up and we can think in a more advanced way, the first question is, who is the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ? That will instruct us what to do. So then as we move to how are we then to live, the surprising thing for our culture, this is still surprising, because by the way, many of you, maybe most of you, and sometimes myself as well, live as if the answer to how you are to live has to do with how to make it in the world. How am I to live? Well, let me explain to you how you can make it. You know, you're going to need to get a good education. Really important to get a good education, or at least to purchase one. And you can do that now in Vancouver. Just buy it. 
A lot of people doing that. Um, so it's important to, to, to achieve or buy a good education, um, to get a good job, uh, to be able to provide for yourself. These, these, some of these things are important, right? And then you will find what? You'll find success. You'll find security. You'll find status, maybe even status, some semblance of power and wealth and standing. This is still, and it's not that, I mean, we don't, as, as Christians, we're not called to hate the world. For God so loved the world. But this is still, what I just described, is still primarily what the world has to offer. And you know, because when you walk into a room, even a room that might have many Christian people in it, they're not, they're probably judging you, and they are judging you, let me just tell you that. Only a little bit, though, because mostly they're thinking about themselves. So, and when they're not thinking about themselves, they're judging you a little bit, but they're getting it wrong, and you're worse than they think. So, anyway. I am, too. So, but the way they're judging you is by the standards of the world. And if you've made it, and you can kind of, then they feel you're something better. But the truth that God gives us is that that's not the standard. How are we to live? In fact, my criticism of that way of judging our lives is not like some minister, ah, that's evil, that's the devil. I think it is evil and the devil, but anyway. My main criticism of it is that it's just terribly boring. I mean, here comes this person that I'm going to meet, and I'm going to go to this to an ultimate tournament today for my kids, and I'm going to see people that I maybe haven't seen for a year, right? And they're going to, and it's at St. George's School, which when I'm at St. George's School, I just think all kinds of bad thoughts. It's like, you do not belong here. I feel like I'm apologizing that my feet are touching that grass. Anyway, that's for me to work on. But someone's going to come up, and they're a parent from Sutherland High School, and they're going to come across, and I haven't seen them for a year, and I'm going to say, hello, so-and-so. And And you know what one of the least interesting things about them is? What they do and how much they have. But if we can relate to one another, and I mean, we have some wonderful, wonderful relationships and people. It's just boring, the standards of the world. Instead, what Paul's going to say in How to Live in Light of the Gospel is this has to do not with your religious living and not with some social status to achieve. This has to do primarily with how you relate to one another. And you can feel that in a church. You can feel that in a community of people. And the, and, and the direction for how you're to relate to one another is going to be over and over again in Romans, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, you're to do this. Because of Jesus, you're to relate to one another with love and acceptance. If someone is weak, and in Romans, remember this, the weak person is identified as the most religious one. Thanks be to God. I'm not weak in some ways because I'm not the most religious. The, the most religious one, the one who seems to always want to have rules and specific things to do and, and needs a, a religious structure, Romans is going to identify that person as weaker, but they're not going to look down upon that person. Paul's going to say you can't look down upon that person. Some people in their faith need this, and those of you who are stronger is the implication. Those of you who can live in freedom, don't look down upon the one who's weaker. And those who are weaker, who seem to... First of all, in our culture, if you just know the rules, you're above everybody else, religiously. And people don't even know what rules they're breaking anymore. So you know the rules and you try to follow them. Paul says, if that's you, then don't condemn the other people. 
Because everybody has been treated the same by Jesus Christ. Offered salvation. Don't give in to this kind of condemnation and don't pile up legalistic requirements on each other. Seek to love everyone with the love of Christ. And the promise is, and we got to this last week, we're almost getting to these names. The promise is that as you do this, as you love one another in this way, as you accept one another in this way, this is the promise of Romans. You will bring praise to God. You thought it was with your singing, which it is in some ways. But your singing is informed by this living. So that then when you take up a song, it is well with my soul. You can sing it not only for you, but you can sing it for the person beside you that you know. And you might know some of their struggles. You can hear the voice of the person behind you. And you can think, I know a little bit about what's happening in their life. As you accept and love one another, you bring praise to God. And last week, this reminder as Paul closes the letter that it's not about Paul at all. And this, again, is contrary to much of how our world would present things. Because if a, if a whole plan of uh, salvation of any kind was laid out, so, you know, the best diet or the best training plan or the best path to career success was laid out, the person who laid that out would brand it, put their name on it, and start selling it. So Paul would write the book of Romans and then call it the Pauline plan for personal renewal. But Paul does this at the end. He kind of steps back and removes himself. It's not about me. Paul is not a trainer who sits down with you and says, tell me about your goals. Not that that's a bad thing. It's just not what Paul is doing. And Jesus is not that either. Jesus, hear this, please. Jesus is not seeking to determine what you think you need to get the most out of life. Jesus is not seeking to determine what you think it is that you need to get the most out of life. Jesus is offering instead salvation, life that is eternal and abundant. And it's more than you could ever ask or need in your own conceived and perceived needs. Jesus is not in many ways, I think for me he does this secondary to salvation, right? As I come to know Jesus Christ, he begins to show me that God is interested in what I like. Just like a a loving parent would be with a child. But in terms of moving towards salvation, Jesus does not ask you what you like or what you need because he's offering something better than that. Jesus is himself the gospel. He is the way of life for you. The way of life. I don't mean like a lifestyle. He is the way that life comes to you and to the world. This is the Christian gospel. This is the hope for the world and the hope for all. That's Christian faith. And it's no threat, and we have no opponent that we have to treat like an enemy if somebody doesn't believe this. The question is, will you respond, trusting him with your life? Will you respond, treating one another in light of the gospel? Not treating one another according to your likes and wants. Not treating one another according to your religious perspective. Not treating one another according to what you think they need to do to change. Not according to your wonderful ability to see their shortcomings. And some of you are experts in seeing the shortcomings of other people. I'm pretty good at it too. That's not how you're to treat one another. None of that matters. None of it matters. You can just stop doing it. Because none of it matters 
in light of the real truth that you are to relate to one another in light of the gospel of God. The God revealed in the love, compassion, strength, power, and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now go do this in the world. So that's been the content of the book. And these are the concluding comments in our last few moments this morning. All of these names, and we've said, God bless you, Norma, for reading them. You got a couple wrong, but I'll tell you about that later. (laughs) I would have had way more wrong. Um, Paul gives a commendation and a warning and a doxology as he closes the book. Norma read the commendation. He commends people. It's quite a bit because he offers greetings to 26 people in a church that he's never visited. Some of these people he has met personally, and some of them he's gotten to know through correspondence, and he certainly knows their roles in the church because he speaks of them. He speaks something of their interest and their gifts and their character. So what he does is something that is pastoral, and I don't know if, I mean, you could, you could evaluate what I do, and if we had a, you know, a pastor uh, performance review or something, it's just a funny term, pastor's performance review. But um, that was a good performance, pastor. But, but one of the things that wouldn't be on the list that's really important in my, as I see ministry is that part of my job, and Paul does it here, part of, part of my job is to introduce you to one another. And Paul does that. Greet, I'm not even going to try the names now because I'll just be judged. Uh, greet so-and-so. Where's the sheet? Greet Mary. Got that one. <laughs> Mary worked very hard for you. See, I was introducing this woman to other people in the church. Right? This is how I would do it. Greet Diane. Do you know that Diane prays for you? Do you know that Diane really, really prays for you? Greet her. Greet Murray Stobulus. Just wanted to add that because it sounds more Roman. Murray's like the guy who knows what's going around and happening in the building because I have no idea. And I try to keep it that way. And he follows after me and corrects my mistakes and whatever else. Greet Murray because he sure works hard and he's got some of his own struggles. And you just keep going through the list. Greet this one and that one. And it's introducing the church people to one another. You are the church. And if I'm part of the church, it's not primarily as pastor. Do you understand that? Pastor is the role that you've granted me in this place. And you grant it, and we believe that we pray about it, and God blesses it. That's our hope. But I'm part of the church as one of these people who would say, you know, Paul would say something, greet Todd. How did he get to be the preacher? I don't know. But he did. And he loves the gospel, and he loves the church. Greet him. It's a pastoral commendation. And you need to do this for one another. In the commendations, there is diversity. We're reminded that this is a world, the Christian faith, life in Jesus Christ. And see, in our world, and it's still the same, it was the same then, it's the same, it's still like it now. Uh, things and people are ranked by division. That's why I think I have bad thoughts when I go to St. George's, because you do not belong here. Power and money, and hear this in the church. Hear this in the church. 
And by the way, those who tend to condemn the rich, you need to give your head a shake too, because it's both ways. In the church, not, not here. No rank, no status, no line, rich beside poor, right? Different races, one beside the other. Person who's got their life all together and has a perfect, you know, looks great this morning, and the one who could barely get here. Maybe they were using last night or something, and they're all here together. It's a diversity. And in this diversity, there is unity, because the key is that this is in Christ. So it's a pretty bold statement that Paul makes in another book to another church, but it reflects this. And it's a statement that we're still miles away from accepting because I still hear from you, and this is in a church that's not that judgmental and religious, but I still hear from you questions about, you know, we better watch that line of division here at times. The bold statement is in Galatians 3, and Paul says he takes the biggest divisions of his day, some of them are common to our day, and the biggest divisions in Paul's day are religious and social and gender-based. Religious would be Jew and Gentile. Those people are divided. Right? Social would be slave and free. Those people are divided. They're of different, they don't mix. And male and female, that's a division that just, well, we know. I mean, God created male and female, and that in the churches talk sometimes in judgmental tones, that kind of language. Paul takes those three strongest divisions, and what does he do with them? There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So then he gives a warning, and just mention it briefly, though it matters deeply to me. In some ways, this is part of my sabbatical call and listening, is how to find the ways to better articulate the gospel in our world today. And uh, I'm excited about going to some other churches to hear some good work and But I'll also say that um, how I feel God calling me in terms of articulating the gospel is um, something that's a a personal thing as well. The warning that Paul gives is he says, watch out for people who cause divisions, who take this gospel and twist it around for whatever purposes. They create obstacles, religious obstacles, or they use the gospel to serve their own appetites. So how do I feel about this? This is how I feel about this. And um, bear with me in terms of how I describe it. The gospel, this is what I feel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is too good to hand over to advertisers or inquisitors. The gospel of Jesus Christ is too good to hand over to advertisers, marketers, or inquisitors. By advertisers, I mean people who seek to build little kingdoms, be they churches or organizations. Anything that people think, if I build this, I will feel significant. If you hand the gospel to people like that, it'll be twisted. It's certainly too good to hand it to inquisitors, people whose work seems to be to try to convince you that God's against you. And we've seen myriads of these people in the history of the Christian church. Hear this from me to you. The gospel is too good to hand it to advertisers or inquisitors. It's bigger than any vision statement can't be contained in a vision statement. You can't do it. Just try. Helping people to know. I I guess. It's bigger than any mission statement of any organization. There is no money that can buy it. 
There is no social standing that can attain it. And this is a gift to the rich even more than to the poor, by the way. There is no credential that you can earn to deserve it. But hear the words of the prophet Isaiah. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without cost. Without money. Without cost. The gospel cannot be achieved with a good life. You can't do anything better than somebody else to achieve it. And you don't become a better person to merit it. No marketer can deny it to you because you don't have the right amount of cash. No inquisitor can take it away from you because it's not that you're ever better than anyone else. You don't get your identity from that, from wealth or status or goodness or standing. The gospel is simply and overwhelmingly that you are loved and wanted because of who God is. You are loved and wanted because of who God is. And in Jesus Christ, you can see that at the center of the universe is a God of eternal love, love even for you. And when you see this, and this is evidence that so many many of us even in churches don't see this, because when you see this, you cease to live a frantically driven life. You might have goals. You might want to achieve things, and I applaud that. But these things don't consume you. You don't have to be frantic. I don't have to earn my way. The realization is that God is eternally good. I don't have to be afraid. My fundamental call in life becomes this. And I exercise this in some, at sometimes as a pastor. Sometimes as a friend, a father, a husband. My fundamental call in life is to receive the love of God. And then to seek to reflect it. The enduring love of God in Christ. So we pick up the names again. All the names from the beginning. And then you can consider with these names, and it would be 26 or 126 different, or however many different people named in our company. But now when you pick up the names again, you realize that every one of us is called to live in light of this gospel. So let's do it. And finally, the doxology. Paul can't stop... Um, I feel like I'm in good company with Paul. Uh, He's got like one big run-on sentence here at the end. I mean, Norma read it well, but it's not your... uh, Norma's gone now. It's um, It's not Norma's reading. It's that Paul just doesn't know how to stop a sentence. Uh, So you get, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with the gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ. And really it should stop there and then go to verse 27. But he keeps going. In keeping with the revelation of the mystery. But now revealed the prophetic writings by the command. So that the Gentiles, it's just a lot. It's still God-breathed and inspired, so you should read it. It's just pretty wordy. But this is the doxology. Now to him, and I'll read it as a benediction at the end as well. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And then down to verse 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. The end of all things is glory. Ecstasy. Wonderful. Beautiful, powerful, 
alive, no scarcity, everlasting, all-encompassing. I experience it like a vista, like when I ride my bike, or you can drive and do this too, but it's up the Lionsgate Causeway, and you're going through the forest, and it used to be thicker before we had those storms. And so it's dark, and you're stuck in traffic, and you're mad at all the people in front of you. Why are there other people in the world? It bothers me. And you're moving towards the North Shore. And then you come out of the trees, and you start your way up the bridge, and then you see this vista. Sunny day. And you can't stop because you're driving, but you take it in. Glory. Light. The glorious gospel. This is the hope of the world. Let's pray. We mention, we try to mention each Sunday that if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ and you would like to, uh, we always have people at the back, in the back corner, who can pray with you. It doesn't have to be about coming to faith. You might have something on your heart or mind or need prayer for something coming up this week or something that you're just wrestling with. You go to the back and take, take advantage of that opportunity to pray with others. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, we always invite you to do that. Uh, this glorious gospel. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your eternal, powerful word. And we pray that we would continue to become your church. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that we have been entrusted with this gospel, even though we are jars just of earthen vessels of clay. That somehow in our frail bodies and existence, we can reflect your light. It's too much for us, but it's so good that it must be true. So help us to do that with one another, for each other, and for this world, not judging, but loving as you have shown us, Jesus Christ, as you have shown us to love. Build your church for your glory that the world would know. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.